in many ways, I was a very timid kid. You know, I didn't like bugs or anything that was creepy, crawly. I didn't like slimy things like frogs or, or lizards. All that stuff kind of gave me the creeps. So there was a lot of times in my childhood where I just remember being too scared to do things. Um, one of those instances comes in taking swimming lessons, and I was pretty young here. Uh, I, I'm guessing somewhere between five and seven. And um, you know how when there's a group of, of kids taking swimming lessons, there comes that point where the instructors have them line up and they got to jump off the board and the di lifeguard will kind of catch them that first time and all that. And there's always one kid in every group, at least, that gets to the end of the board and totally freezes. I was that kid. And I remember just standing there at the very end of the diving board and feeling so terrified. I mean, feeling like I was like 30 feet in the air. In reality, it was probably three or four feet off the water. But I felt like if I stepped off of that board, I was going to fall forever. It felt so scary, so dangerous. And ultimately, my fear wasn't of the fall, but it was of the deep end. Because I knew I couldn't touch. I knew I couldn't just put my feet on the ground and stand and be safe. And it would, it, I knew it would take work and effort, and I'd have to depend on whether or not I had the skills to actually swim to save my life. And after I did finally jump off the board, I, I don't know if my mom yelled at me or who all was like, come on, do it, or what, but I finally did jump, and I landed in the safe embrace of whatever lifeguard was teaching me that day at the Fairfield pool. Um, but even after kind of tackling that moment, I was still really scared of the deep end, and uh, I stayed in the shallow end. And so much so was my fear of the deep end that I remember wishing I could go back and play in the baby pool you know, the thing that's only like maybe a foot deep, not even, because that big pool with that big deep end, it really, really frightened me. And I don't know how long this went on. I don't remember the age exactly where I finally realized that the deep end of the pool is the absolute best part. I mean, the amazing feeling on a really hot summer's day of jumping off the board and being completely submerged in the nice, cool water, along with that feeling of weightlessness you get when you're all the way under. I mean, that's amazing. And until I had kids, when I got to a pool, if there was a deep end, that was the first place I went, and that's where I spent most of my time. And I look back, and I wonder, why did it take me so long to dive into the deep end? I, how many good years and, and times of swimming did I you know, miss out on because I was so scared. Um, but yet the deep end, it just looked overwhelming. And the shallow end was just comfortable, and it was safe. And that's kind of where I like to hang out. Now, I wonder about whether or not we do this with our faith. You see, I think there's a lot of people who spend their entire lives as a Christian just kind of splashing around in the shallow end thinking that they are getting everything that they need out of church, out of faith, and they, they never know the joy of diving deeper into the teachings and ideas and the practices that, yeah, might be a little harder, but when you finally embrace it and explore it, it can be so much more rewarding than the shallow faith. And so consequently, I think there's a lot of people out there um, for which faith isn't much help. You know, they, they come to church on Sundays, or maybe once in a while, and they do some, they do some Christian-like things, and they would call themselves Christians, but yet, in their everyday life, their faith doesn't really apply. It's not really practical. And yeah, they learn to, like, recite the Lord's Prayer, and maybe say a few verses like John 3.16, but when they're at work, and there's some guy who's being mean to them, and trying to blame 
them for a mistake that he made. Like that, they feel like where's my faith doesn't apply here. I don't. They don't take their faith with them through their life because again, that shallow surface level, it's not really that helpful. And not only can a shallow faith be unhelpful, but it really does very little to prevent us from being seduced away by other wise-sounding philosophies and ideas that our world is full of and they're going to toss, toss at us all the time. I mean, if you don't know the, the depths of God's truth, you might not be able to tell the difference between real truth out in the world and deception and falsehood. Now, one of my goals in teaching, whether it's in person or, or digitally or vi- virtually online, um, one of my goals is to nudge people out of the shallow end and into the deep end because it's in the deep end that our faith becomes rich meaningful helpful and strong and one of the most important areas of life and faith where we need to get away from the shallow stuff and dive into the deep is when it comes to the idea and the experiences of suffering we need to understand where god is in painful moments and circumstances because How we make sense of that will absolutely determine not only the course of your life, but maybe even the course of your eternity. Because painful seasons can make or break your faith. A lot of people who have a shallow faith, and and even a lot of mature people sometimes, get so overwhelmed with pain and struggle that they can't make sense of how God can be good and their life can still be so painful. But pain is one of the greatest ways in which God will often grow our faith and make our faith stronger. And so as we get into our passage today, I want us to talk about how we can go to the deep end, build a a deep understanding of suffering, and ultimately how that can help us to suffer well, how to endure well seasons of suffering. Now, if you're newer, um, we have been in a teaching series where we have been going through the New Testament book of James. And the thing with James and many other parts of the Bible, we call them books, um, these different writings that make up the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, things like Genesis, Revelation, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, we call them books, but a lot of them aren't books. Um, there's a lot of them in the New Testament, especially, which are actually letters. And James is one of those letters. It was written by James, who turns out to be the half brother of Jesus like the Jesus, right? And he was writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered all over the Roman Empire. And James is essentially writing to show them how to live as Christians and build a deep, lasting faith in a world that definitely does not make it easy for them to do so. I mean, one of the ways the world didn't make it easy was that at various times there was a lot of hatred toward Christians and a lot of persecution towards Christians. And so these Christians were facing this incredibly difficult landscape in which to build their faith. Their faith would regularly going, it was regularly tested. And if they didn't have a deep understanding of the role of suffering in God's creation and God's role in times of suffering, then their faith probably wouldn't have made it through all of the chaos and pain that they endured. So let's dive in today and see what James has to say about suffering. And he's, there's a whole little passage here, a few verses here. We're only going to read two today simply because they're so full of content. So let's go ahead and dive in. James chapter 5, we'll start in verse 7. James says, 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the first thing James tells us about earthly suffering is that it requires patience. Now, to be fair, he doesn't mention suffering anywhere in these two verses, but in the verses that follow, he he starts to talk about suffering, and it becomes very clear that that's what this entire section is about. And so the first thing he says that we must do in times of suffering is learn to be patient. Now, I don't know about you, but patience is really, really a difficult thing for me especially in, the, in a time of suffering, the last thing I want to do is just sit and be patient. I want to act, right? I want to do something to get me out of pain. I want to fix something, to undo whatever it was that happened that caused the pain. I want to pray for miracles. I want God to show up and undo or rewind time so that whatever caused the tragedy could be prevented. I, would, I am willing to do anything in a season of suffering except wait, especially be patient. Waiting patiently is not my natural response, even a little bit. And, and, you know, when I think of patience and waiting patiently, I think of negative experiences. You know, I think of getting to a restaurant and being hungry only to find out that you have a 45-minute wait and you get that little square that vibrates when you're you know, it's your turn to eat and just sitting there staring at the square and looking at your phone and, you know, bumping into the people that are coming in and out of the restaurant and you're just thinking about how hungry you are. I think of stuff like that. Um, I think about the agony that I felt as a kid waiting for Christmas to show up. I mean, as a kid, I don't know what it was, but it felt like forever. Once those presents started showing up under the tree, it felt like forever before we finally got to Christmas morning and I could open them. Um, I usually did okay on Christmas. I I felt like miserable waiting for presents, but for the most time I did a for most part I waited okay. There was one time where I I peeked. Only one time I think I ever peeked at a present and I crawled under my tree. My mom was working in the other room and I tore open the tape very carefully and unwrapped one end to see that I was getting the Batman Returns uh, movie on VHS. Very excited. And then I taped it back up, and then for the rest of the days until Christmas, I was paranoid and terrified that my mom was going to find out and bust me for it, that she would notice that the tape kind of looked a little weird on the end. Um, But as far as I know, uh, she didn't catch me. She might not even know about it, and she might be watching this right now and be like, I never knew you did that, but either way. that's kind of. But anyway, that's the kind of stuff I think of when it comes to waiting, right? Those negative experiences. I think of, you know, sitting in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles because you got to get a sticker for your license or you got to renew your or a sticker for your plates, or you got to renew your license, and so you got to be there, and the line's huge, and you just have to wait. That's the kind of stuff that I think about. I rarely associate patience or the 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 um, or having to wait with anything positive. Um, and you know, one thing I found pati- or interesting, excuse me, about the word patience in this passage was. Um, the, the Greek word that is translated patience, at one point in history, um, a little earlier than when the, the New Testament was written, it was a word that, that meant just accepting something. Uh, it was a word that meant kind of resigning yourself to the fact that something unwanted 
was happening, okay? It was that feeling that you get when you get to the DMV and the line's huge and you just think, I, I have no choice. I'm just going to be bummed out that I'm going to be here for an hour or two. And you just sit and wait and you're kind of bummed out about it, all right? That's what the word used to mean. But over time, like words do, it changed. And it took on a little bit of a different meaning. And so by the time the New Testament was written, it had another alternate um, meaning to it. And it, was, it came to mean kind of the same thing as endurance. Um, it meant to press on, to persevere, to some, in some ways even grow, even experience growth in times of discomfort and pain. You didn't just sit there and wait and twiddle your thumbs and moan and groan about how you were waiting. To wait patiently meant to make the most of that season of waiting. And so patience wasn't just a passive thing in here. It's an active thing. And so patience in this verse, what it's actually saying is that patience is about wisely using the waiting period. It's about taking that time between where you are and that thing you're looking forward to. It's about using that time as wisely as possible. That's what he means here when he says that we need to be patient. He doesn't just mean sit still and be bored. No, he means look at your time you have. How can you make the most of it? Now, the example that he goes on to give here is the example of a farmer who plants his crop and then has months and months between planting and harvesting, you know, months before he's going to actually know if he can feed his family, if he's going to have enough grain, if that year's harvest is going to be enough to sustain his family for another year. Now, around here, um, we are well acquainted with farming because either you are a farmer, you know a farmer, or you get stuck behind farm equipment certain times of year, right? So we know a little bit about when farming happens around here. Um, and we think of the time for growing crops to be summer, right? That's when all the corn's popping up, right? That's what we think of. We think summer. Um, but in um, Israel, in that part of the world, um, that was not when they would grow their crops because the summer, it was so hot and dry that pretty much everything dies, or at least a lot of stuff dies in the summer. And so they plant in the fall, around October or November, when the early rains come, as, as James calls it. And um, when those early rains come, what they do is they, they finally soften the ground. Because without those early rains, you, you couldn't even hardly dig enough to really plant much of a crop. So they needed the rain to, one, soften the ground and put enough moisture in the ground to help those seeds get off to a good start. And then the late rains would come in spring, in March or April, and those would help mature the crops and kind of finish things off so that they could have a good harvest. And, and so they have these months in between, these early rains and these late rains, which they're kind of waiting and hoping. And, certain, and the aspect of rain, that's beyond their control. And that's the lifestyle of a farmer, both now and then. There are elements of being a farmer where you are are, are depending on things that are entirely outside of your control. You know, for the, for the ancient farmer, if the early rains didn't come, they couldn't plant on time. If the late rains didn't come, they'd have really, really puny crops that probably wouldn't feed their family for a year. And, and the thing about this season of waiting was that it could be very, very difficult. Um, because let's assume that the previous year had been a bad year. Well, that means they didn't have enough crop, one, to, to eat on for a full year. And they also didn't have any extra maybe to sell for certain necessities that they would also have to buy or trade or however that worked. 
And so they might be getting to the point where they're running out of food. And they're waiting months and months just hoping and praying that the crops are going to turn out, hoping and praying that the rain's going to show up. And they're, they're maybe skipping meals or, or rationing their food back and they're losing weight. But no matter how hungry they got, uh, they, they became, they had no choice but to wait and wait and wait to see if God came through, to see if the rains came and to see if the crops came up. But even though they were waiting even though they, there were certain elements of this process that, that they can't control, that in between time, between planting and harvesting, still gave them plenty to do, right? I mean, the thing with farmers, like they didn't just sit around and like whine and twiddle their thumbs and say, oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, no, what are we going to do? No, that's not how farmers do things now, and that's not how farmers did things then. In that waiting period, they could still do certain things to, in, to ensure that their crop was in a good shape and ready to receive that late rain when it came. And so they would do things like protect their crop from critters that wanted to come in and eat it. Uh, they could do things like uh, they were doing things like putting pesticides on their crops. Yeah, there were pesticides in the ancient world. Um, they would be digging out weeds. All that kind of normal gardening slash farming stuff that we think of, there was still plenty of work to do, things that they could actively be pursuing while they waited on these things that were outside of their control. And so, yes, the farmer can't make it rain. They can't make the crop grow but they can make good use of their time while they're waiting. And the thing that the farmer was waiting for was the harvest, right? That's the thing they were waiting to enjoy. But for James, he says the the reason why we are being patient, the thing that we are looking forward to is the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus. And why this makes a uh, has a big impact on the idea of suffering is because the Bible is very clear that when Jesus comes back at the second coming of Christ, that's when pain and suffering on earth will be wiped away. That's when injustice and sin will be removed from the human experience. That's when all pain goes away. And so he says, hey, if you're suffering now, be patient and look forward to the, the second coming of Christ. And that's interesting and not all that comforting because it's a kind of like saying, hey, if you're suffering, just look at it this way. One day you'll die, or Jesus will come back, and you'll go to heaven. It's like, no, I want my pain to stop now. Like, I don't want to have to wait. I want my pain to be done now. So how do I do that? And that's kind of the thing that we want to happen. And so I think it's interesting that, that that's what James points us to, this future heavenly moment, not to a day when, when things on earth are necessarily going to get better. And in confronting this truth is where we have to move from the shallow end of faith to the deep end of faith. You know, far too many Christians live as if the point of having faith in Jesus is so that he'll give them a happy, safe, pain-free life, right? Um, they're working a lot of people, Christian, not even all Christians, a lot of people just think the universe works this way, um, but there's a lot of Christians who kind of operate um, with a very simple framework when it comes to suffering that really only has a couple of uh, parts to it. Um, the first one is, you know, if I'm good, God will bless me, right? If I'm good, God will bless me. You know, he'll keep me safe, he'll keep me happy, and he'll do the same to everybody I love. And the second part of that is, you know, what you would expect. If I'm bad, God will punish me. 
If I'm good, God will bless me. If I'm bad, God will punish me. He'll start giving me flat tires on rainy days, and he'll make me lose my job and drop my phone on the concrete and break it in the same day. He'll start giving me bad things in my life because I've disappointed him. Now, um, the thought process behind this simple framework is simply like, okay, if I come to church enough, if I pray enough, if I maybe give enough, if I read my Bible enough, um, if I try to generally be a nice person, then God's going to give me a good life. I can be pretty sure that God's going to give me a good life. And a lot of people gravitate to that belief that if I do good, God will give me good. If I do bad, God will give me bad. And I think the reason why we gravitate towards that is simply because it feels fair. Like it, it makes sense to us, right? It seems like that's the way the universe should work. It goes with our very much ingrained sense of justice, right? Good happens to good people, bad happens to bad people. But unfortunately, as any Christian who has ever truly suffered knows, that perspective on suffering doesn't hold up to reality. Because you can do absolutely everything right. You can have perfect church attendance. You can read your Bible every day. You can pray before every meal. And when you wake up and when you go to bed and a bunch of times in between, you can help anybody that you see that needs help. You can volunteer when there's opportunities to volunteer. You can give generously. You can do it all and still end up in a season of loss or pain. And so if you're operating under this very simple framework of God blesses good people and he punishes bad people, when suffering happens, you've only really got two choices. That, that framework really only leads you to one of two places. The first place is, well, what did I do wrong? If something bad has happened to me, well then, you know, i got to start sifting through what I've done, who I've talked to, things I've said, and I've got to start figuring out things I either did wrong or something I was supposed to do that I didn't do. i got to figure out why God is mad at me. But the second place where, where that can usually end up uh, is you get angry with God because he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. You know, God isn't being fair to you. You did good things, and he was supposed to give you a good life in return. And I've known so many people who, yeah, would have called themselves Christians, people I went to camps with, people I've served alongside. I know a lot of people who have had their faith destroyed because they were hanging on to this simple, shallow framework. And, and when something came along and life got bad, the only conclusion they could reach because of that framework was that God was mean, God was cruel, God was unjust, God was unfair. And so if that's God, then they didn't want any part of it. So the question then becomes, is there a better answer than just working with that simple framework? And maybe you're sitting there thinking, wait, I thought that's how it did work. I thought God blessed good people and punished bad people. I thought that was kind of the point of everything. I thought becoming a Christian meant that I got to be a part of this good team and my life would get better, right? So is there a different answer? And the answer is yes, there's a different answer. But it's a deeper explanation. And it's not maybe the one that we want to hear. I mean, the thing I honestly want to hear is that, yeah, if, I'm, if I do good things, God will give me good things. That's what I want to hear. Um, but I will say that the deeper explanation, it's one, more biblical, and two, it will line up with reality so much more. And so we've got to start putting aside that 
you know, do good and be blessed, do bad and get punished mentality. Um, and so let's start working this, this deeper, more complex framework. And, and I, I've got it kind of boiled down to, to three parts. All right, you ready? Number one, the reality behind suffering is very complex. Because when suffering happens, we want to know why. And that's why that simple mindset is so um, tempting, because it does want to answer. When bad things happen, well, the answer is you did a bad thing. But it's more than that. I mean, we, we live in a world where there's just, you know, what, we co- what our insurance companies would call acts of God, you know, where there's tornadoes and random fires and things that nobody's in control of, lightning strikes, torna- earth, um, hurricanes and earthquakes, all those natural disaster things, right? That's one level of, or one source of pain in the world. But then there's things like just people being horrible, people being evil and hurting other people and murdering other people and stealing from other people and and all of that. So the reasons behind suffering are very, very complex. And, And I think we can, hopefully most of us admit that we know that bad stuff happens to good people all the time. And maybe even more frustrating is the fact that good stuff happens to bad people all the time. I mean, have you ever seen somebody who you just thought was the worst and their life just seemed to be one continuous lucky break after another? Like, that's, that's so maddening, right? And as we look out at life and we just kind of look at the people we know in our lives, what we're going to really learn is that this idea of suffering is, that suffering is complex. We learn that that's true because everybody's life is a mixture of some good and some bad and, and this hope that we maybe have of having a pain-free life, that's not realistic. That's not something that anybody gets to experience. And more importantly, it's not something that God ever promised us. When we assume that God is being cruel because he didn't give us a good life, God never promised that we would get 80 years of comfort and luxury and peace and we would die in our sleep. That's not the promise that God makes to his people. And so we have to first understand that the reality behind suffering is very, very complex. The second thing we need to understand is that we as humans will never fully understand the why behind suffering. We just won't. The world is too big, there are too many moving parts, and we're too limited. We just don't have the ability to understand all of what's going on in our world. We can't see all of the ways in which God is working. We can't see all of the cruelty that man is unleashing in our world. We just can't understand it all. Our perspective is too limited. We are too limited. We are too small. And yes, there are some places in Scripture where where it will say, hey, sometimes suffering happens because of this. So it'll give us a little bit of an answer for sometimes. But overall, when you read through the Bible, what you will find is that God really is not all that interested in helping us understand why suffering happens. And so we've got to be okay with not understanding. And that's a really hard place to get to. And this is what makes the deeper in something that we have to wrestle with and we have to grow in as we try to understand the the more complex parts of our faith and how God in our world can really coexist as or more more specifically how a good god and our difficult world can really go together and so we got to understand and admit that we don't have all the answers 
The third thing that we learn about, that we need to learn about, and, and when we're rebuilding a new kind of framework to live with um, when it comes to understanding suffering, is that despite our lack of understanding, God can still be trusted in any circumstance. Despite our lack of understanding, God can still be trusted in any circumstance, even the painful ones. And you know, when you take away the idea that God promised you a happy life, that God promised you a pain-free life, when you put that lie aside, what you will start to see is that it's a lot easier to trust God when you expected that, yes, sometimes bad things just happen to people. It's a lot easier to trust him because you don't feel betrayed. You don't feel like he left you hanging. You don't feel like he hung you out to dry. But I will say that this deeper framework of, of um, real, that, that the reality behind suffering is very complex and that we as humans will never understand it, but that we can trust God even when we can't see the why, that deeper framework of faith, yes, it's very hard to accept um, because when you're in the shallow end, right, of a pool, you can just stand up. You can just put your feet on the ground, lean up against the edge, and you're safe. Nothing, nothing, no surprises, right? Except maybe a kid splashing in your face. But when you go to the deep end, it takes work to stay afloat. It takes effort. You can't be lazy in the deep end. I mean, you could say, well, I can float in the deep end. Okay, I can't float. I don't know why. I sink like a stone. So if that's what I'm, I'm coming from my point of view, right? When I get in the deep end, I can't relax because I just go straight to the bottom of the pool. And so if I'm going to make it in the deep end, I got to work a little. I got to move my arms and I got to keep myself moving and, 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 and pointed upward, <laughs> right? And so it's going to require work to move from the shallow end of an under, a shallow understanding of suffering to a deeper understanding, a more complex framework of suffering. And the main answer, reason for that, I think, is because the deeper stuff, it leaves gaps. It doesn't answer all your questions. You see, the shallow framework, it, it tries to answer all the questions. Oh, your life is good. You must be a pretty good person. Oh, your life is bad. You must have done something bad, right? There's, there's no exceptions to that. It's just... You're good, get good. You're bad, get bad. Um, but, but the deeper framework, it leaves a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of gaps. It leaves those spaces where we don't know why suffering happens. We don't understand all of the moving parts about why we're suffering and how we're suffering. And instead of leading us to answers, which is what we want, what James tells us to do is to trust our Heavenly Father. When we get to that place of uncertainty, instead of trying to scramble to find hard and fast, solid answers, rather, lean on our Heavenly Father. And that is this work of patience that we are given. When he says, be patient, like I said, it's, it's wisely using the time of the waiting period. Well, as we live in this world, and suffering is going to come, and pain is going to happen, We've got this season between now and either we, we die and our time on this earth is over or Jesus comes back and our time on this earth is over. Between now and then, we are going to have to wait patiently. And waiting patiently is, is us working to increase our trust in God. That's what it means to be patient right now. That's what it means to suffer with patience is that we work 
in this season to strengthen our trust in our Heavenly Father. To trust that despite my limited view, He is still working and He is still good. That, that He does have a plan to bless me and reward me, but maybe the bulk of that blessing isn't going to happen in this life like I'd like, but it's going to be reserved for the next. This is what it means um, when he says in verse 8, to establish your hearts. Um, the Greek translation, uh, or the, the, the Greek word that gets translated established there, it's a word that means to support, to uh, strengthen, to shore up. I don't love the English, the, the fact that our Bible's translated it as established. That doesn't really tell me a whole lot. But when you look and realize that it's a word to, that means to shore up and strengthen, um, what it kind of paints you the picture of is if you've ever had a little tree in your yard and anytime a storm came and there was some wind or something, that tree just went, you know, and, and, and it just couldn't, it couldn't handle the beating, right? And so what would you do is you'd go out there and you'd get a solid stake, you'd hammer it nice and firmly into the ground, and you'd tie that weak little tree to that something solid so that the tree would be able to, to grow on its own in that season when the storms came and it got battered a little bit. Well, that's kind of the same idea here with our faith, that we establish our hearts by, by tying them to our Heavenly Father. So that as we wait on the return of Christ, we, even in times of suffering, look to him and try to remind ourselves that he is good even when life is bad. And um, there are, I think, lots of ways that we can kind of establish our hearts in, in the Lord. I think there's a lot of ways we can um, reassure ourselves of his goodness even in times of, of trouble. Um, I think one is um, look to Jesus. You will find no greater example um, of God's goodness and love for you than Jesus. Jesus, who is God himself, who stepped out of the perfection and painlessness of heaven into our broken world to experience pain, suffering, temptation, and disappointment, and even death, so that you and I could be freed from the chains of our brokenness and have a hope beyond this broken world. We can keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate reminder that God is good and that he loves us. So even when maybe the, the, the life that we're going through, the season that we're going through, doesn't really make us think that God loves us, we can look to our Savior, the one who died and rose on our behalf. He can, he can be kind of an anchor for us in, 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 in grounding us to the truth, which is that, man, God is good all the time. Another thing we can do is pray. Pray. Really honestly pray. If you look at through the book of Psalms, which was Israel's prayer slash songbook, what you're going to find um, are examples of tremendously honest prayers of people who are trying to make sense <clears throat> of their painful situations and the goodness of their God. God, I, I've, I've always believed that you were good, and man, life is horrible. And sometimes they really let God have it. And these are prayers of anger and pain and anguish and desperation. But it shows us that in those moments, we can pray to our Heavenly Father and He will graciously listen. And He can take even maybe our prayers that are prayed in anger or sadness or desperation. So we pray. Another thing we should do, read the Bible. Lean on Scripture. 
You see, in the next few verses, what James is going to do is he's going to give us examples to look to of people who suffered, and they suffered and endured through that suffering really well. He's going to tell us about a lot of the prophets suffered and, and were examples of, of enduring faith. He's going to point us to the story of Job who suffered and was a great example of enduring faith. And so we can lean on Scripture to find other examples to remind us that, oh, those guys went through seasons of, of, of things that were really bad, and they still got to learn and see the other side and discover that God loved them. Maybe that's what's happening with me. Maybe I'm just in that middle part where I don't feel it right now. So we can look to Scripture. And then another thing I think is so important that we so often miss because we come to church and we say, hey, how you doing? And everybody says, I'm fine. Everything's, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's great. Praise God. But I think we need to lean on our church family more. Uh, chances are, anything you're going through in life, there are other people here who either have gone through it or are currently going through it. We can be here to encourage one another and support one another and pray for one another and, and just have shoulders to lean on and cry on when in seasons of suffering come for some of us. And we can say, you're not alone. We're with you. I understand what you're feeling. I know it can be confusing, but I promise you, God is still good. And we can surround ourselves with people who are going to um, establish our hearts, shore up, strengthen our hearts to God. Now, my encouragement to you would be to get rid of every ounce of that insufficient, inaccurate, unhelpful framework that says, oh, if I do good, I'll get blessed, and if I do bad, I'll get punished. Get that out of your head. That's, that's karma. That's a Buddhist belief. It is, not, it is not a Christian belief. In fact, the fact that Jesus comes to free us from the consequences of our sin is the opposite of this. Okay? We were bad, Jesus was good, and he saves us even though we're bad. And he got killed even though he was good. I mean, it's, it's the opposite. So get that nonsense out of your head. It will only lead you to disappointment when real suffering comes. And start working to accept the deeper reality that God is good even when life isn't. That he is still working for you even when you can't see it and even when you can't feel it. And that our hope that this life is going to be perfect, that's not the hope. That's a misplaced hope. The real perfection comes in the next life. The one that Jesus came and died to secure our entry into. So be patient in suffering by working to strengthen your trust in God so that when suffering comes, and it will come, that you'll be able to endure it without losing your faith.